God allows the sons of God to come before Him. And it also says that Satan came before Him as well. And God asked Satan, from whence do you come? And he said, from going to and fro on the earth. I'm here to tell you, I think I know where Satan was today. I know where he was this afternoon. And I know what his goals were. He had two goals at least. One, to make sure that I don't get here. He failed on that, but boy, he tried awful hard. And the second one, to get me fired. And brethren, I don't know. Check with me Monday. He might have won that one. I don't know. We'll see. But it's so good to be here. I appreciate so very much your patience uh, as I was coming up the road. You know, I, I had this all planned out. I said, okay, I'm, I'm going to leave at 3 o'clock. Got plenty of time. It takes two and a half hours to get here. That's what GPS said. Fine. And of course, 3 o'clock slips. Three th- I got plenty of time. No problem. 4 o'clock. No, no problem. 4.11. Oh, I still got 19 minutes. Oh, I got plenty of time. And then I'm just, just, just getting out. And I'm before rush hour traffic. Shouldn't have any problem. All of a sudden, I see the brake lights. How did this happen? Traffic. Accident. I'm like, no. Nah. No, not me. And then I keep driving and driving. And then I'm like, okay, i got to call Brother Tomley. And then I, at the point that I want to call Brother Tomley and let him know, no cell phone service. Oh. <laughs> and and then, then I drive a little bit more, and then the check engine light comes up. I was going to be late. Now I'm not even going to get there. But the Lord is good. Satan lost. God won. I'm here. I appreciate so very much your presence. I hope that you have your Bibles with you. Because it's your responsibility to be an active listener. It's your responsibility to have the spirit of the Bereans. You remember Acts 17, 11. It said of the Bereans that they were more noble than those in Thessalonica. Why? And that they searched the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. And so one can never assume that what is proclaimed from this pulpit is truth. Might be some great fellows who step up here. Might be some folks you've known for years. People you think very highly of. But you cannot assume that what is proclaimed is God's word. You have to fact check what is said. And you fact check what is proclaimed from this pulpit by having a Bible with you. In whatever form or format you have, electronic, hard copy, whatever. But there needs to be fact checking to make sure that what is presented is indeed God's Word. I thank you so very much for this occasion. It is a blessing to be with this group. I've heard many, many wonderful reports about this group, its rapid growth, all the wonderful things that have taken place here. And this past week, We had the benefit, we at Oak Mountain, and the pleasure of sitting at the feet of our brother, David Tomley. And he did a fantastic job. I don't have to tell you that. You know that. You get a steady diet of it. But I want you to know that you're blessed. I had heard about brother Tomley for years and years. Had met his brother Mike, but never had the chance to sit at his feet. And every single one of his sermons were outstanding. They were biblical. They were energetic. They were passionate. They were moving. And, and, And they hit the little people. And to me, that that is the the criteria that I have personally for how effective a man is. I remember asking a brother one time about a preacher that I'd heard about years and years before my time. And just I said, man, I wish I could go back in time and and sit at this preacher's feet and just listen to what he said. What was it like, brother? You were there. You got a chance to hear that brother on a regular basis. And he said, well, yeah, he, he was an impressive guy. But, you know, here was the problem. His preaching was up here. And the church was down here. That's no good, folks. That's not effective preaching. I don't know what that is. But in order for preaching to be effective, people have to understand what's being said. And when my 10-year-old son is taking notes on Wednesday night and makes the comment, this was a great gospel meeting. 
then the man who did the preaching did an excellent job. Brother Tommy, thank you very much. You did an excellent job for the saints at Oak Mountain. Let me ask this question. How many roads? How many roads lead to heaven? Very important question. How many roads lead to heaven? We all seem to want to go to heaven. The question is how to get there. How broad or how narrow is the way? How many options do we have? That's a very important question. It seems like the answer from a large standpoint of the religious world has changed on that. When I was growing up, there was a sense that there was a path, and because there was one path, there were a lot of discussions about this book we call the Bible. A lot of discussions about what it meant and a lot of studies and a lot of debates and, oh, this is my passage and I think this supports me. No, 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 what about this passage over here? And yet we, we live in a society today where I think that's become extinct. We, we don't hear that sort of thing. What you hear is more like, well, that, that, that's good. That's, that's what you believe. That's fine. And I believe something else and that's fine too. <laughs> We're all going to get there. You just be sincere in what you believe. I'll be sincere in what I believe and we'll all get to heaven. I remember listening uh, to the radio. There was an interview with an imam. And they were asking him about the idea of different religions and how to reconcile the different faiths and the different teachings of those faiths. He said, you know, I look at it like a journey to the top of the mountain. And I may take one side of the mountain and I'll get to the top. But somebody else may start from the other side. And you know what? They'll end up in the same place. He said, so it is with Judaism and uh, Islam and Christianity. These are just different paths to get to the top of the mountain. That's a very popular and pervasive belief. But my question is still, how many roads lead to heaven? And one of the questions we have to ask ourselves is, how do we answer that question? What is the process? How do we go about trying to come to a conclusion to the question, how many roads lead to heaven? You know, we could just vote on it. (laughs) We love voting in this country, live in a representative democracy, and voting is a very important thing, and I would say amen to that. The legitimacy of our rulers, our our, uh, kings, uh, so to speak, our uh, governors and our mayors depends in large part upon people having the right to vote and exercising that right to vote. And so should we just put it to the vote and say, how many roads lead to heaven? We'll take a massive survey and then we'll tally it up and that will decide for us once and for all, indeed, what the answer to the question is. Or maybe we say, no, 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 we want to go to the experts We want to get some expertise, those people who are specialized. We'll go to the ethicists or the philosophers or those trained in sociology or theology. We'll go to the seminaries and we'll pitch the question to them. How many roads lead to heaven? And then we'll poll those individuals who are informed, not just the rank and file, not just lay people. They're specialists. And we'll answer the question, how many roads lead to heaven? Or maybe we say, no, no, no. I'm just going to go by tradition. Tradition, the family I was growing, raised in. I, my mom, my dad, my grandma. My gra- you know, if my grandma, as great a person as she was, what a wonderful person she was, if, if, if there is a God in heaven, I know she's going to be there. And, and whatever she says is going to answer that for me. The question, how many roads lead to heaven? Or maybe you say, no, no, no. I'm just going to reason it out for myself. i got a good mind. I know logic, I know reasoning, I know how to analyze. I'm just going to take all the different inputs and I will spit out the answer, how many roads lead to heaven. I would suggest to you that none of those mechanisms are effective to answer the question, how many roads lead to heaven. Might I suggest to you, the only way to answer that question is with this book we call the Bible. 
The only way that I'm going to answer the question, how many roads lead to heaven, is I'm going to have to consult this book. And somebody says, wait a minute. Wait a minute. It's, it's just a book. It's just something people put together. They wrote. I can go down to Barnes & Noble. I can go to Books A Million. There are all kinds of books there. Just because somebody writes a book, now you can even self-publish. Just because you write a book doesn't mean it's true. But it's not just any book. It's a special book. Why? 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17 tells us why. 2 Timothy, the third chapter, verses 16 through 17. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 through 17. The Bible says this, all, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, For instruction in righteousness, why? That the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. What does he say about all scripture? He says it's inspired of God. That makes this book different. It's not like any other book that you go to Barnes & Noble and Books a Million for. It's not like the books that are sold on Amazon. This is a God-breathed book. These are the words that God communicated to his creation. And we need to let that sink in. There's significance to that. I remember having a conversation with a young lady one time while I was in school. And we were talking about the teaching in Ephesians 5, 22 through 33. We'll talk about that a little bit more in a moment. And specifically, the application of that teaching as it pertains between a man and his wife in marriage. That there are roles to be fulfilled. The Bible teaches that the man is the head of the house. And the woman is to be, the wife is to be subject to her husband. And this young lady was talking about that. And and she said, you know what? I have a problem with the Apostle Paul. I have a problem with the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 5, 22, 33. Why? Because what, what if, and this young lady was extremely talented, extremely smart. She said, what if I'm smarter than my husband? What if I'm more analytical than my husband? What if I have a better paying job than my husband? What if I'm more successful than my husband? What if I have more uh, leadership qualities in the community than my husband? You're telling me with all of that, I still have to submit to this man? I have a problem with the Apostle Paul. Now what error did she make in her thinking there? Lots of errors, but what's the fundamental error that she's made in her thinking? She forgot the very point that we're making tonight. This book is inspired of God. You do not have a problem with the Apostle Paul. You have a problem with the God who inspired the Apostle Paul to write Ephesians 5, 22-33. This is not a Paul thing. Don't don't put Paul in this. It's not personal. This is what God inspired this man to write. And so therefore it has meaning, it has impact, it's timeless, it's eternal. It's, as Brother Tommy taught us this week, it's truth. And so that needs to be significant. So if I want to know the answer to the question, how many roads lead to heaven, I'm going to consult the only source that could possibly answer that question authoritatively. And that's the Bible. And so with that in mind, let's examine what does the Bible have to say about the question of how many roads lead to heaven. 
Let me suggest to you a first thing. Do not, number one, point number one, do not rely upon man to tell you how to get to heaven. Do not rely upon men to try, tell you how to get to heaven. You say, why? We have men that tell us all kinds of things. And how is that working out for you? <laughs> Look at that. We've got folks saying all kinds of contradictory things. Don't rely upon men to tell you how to get to heaven. The Bible even says that. Proverbs 14, 12. Turn over there, please. Proverbs 14, 12. Don't rely upon men to tell you how to get to heaven. Don't rely upon men to tell you how to get to heaven. Proverbs 14, 12. Proverbs, the 14th chapter and the 12th verse. Proverbs chapter 14 and verse 12. The Bible says, There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. There is a way that seems right. It just feels right. It makes sense to us. I was talking to a friend of mine recently, and he made a point. He said, do you notice how so much of God's revealed will is counterintuitive? Counterintuitive. In other words, it's not, it doesn't make sense from the carnal mind. It's not just common sense. It's not just what you and I would do. In fact, the Bible says if we rely upon our own knowledge, our own experience, our own ways of thinking, you know where that leads it leads to destruction and death. I heard a preacher one time saying that uh, the path to heaven is intentional. It's purposive. You know, sometimes we'll be riding along and we'll just kind of stumble across something. We'll bump into something. may not be even intending. We end up where we wanted to be or someplace even more wonderful. But the preacher made the point there's none of that when it comes to heaven. Heaven is intentional. It's deliberate. It's purposive. You don't accidentally fall into heaven. He said the things that we naturally do, the things that we do left to our own devices, all of those things, most of those things, he said, are hell related. Think about that. That's what Proverbs 14, 12 was saying. Repeat it again in Proverbs 16, 25. There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. And if God is telling us that, then when we have these discussions about how many roads there are to heaven, how dare we say, well, I feel, <laughs> well, I think, uh, it seems to me. Don't you think, no, 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 no. He's just told us there's a way that seems right, that seems right to a man. So we don't want to talk about seems. And we don't want to talk about feelings. We don't want to talk about, what does the word of God say? See, God knows that. Don't rely upon men. I like the way Jeremiah said in Jeremiah chapter 10, verse 23. Let's turn over there. Jeremiah 10, verse 23. Do not rely upon men to tell you how to get to heaven. Do not rely upon men to tell you how to get to heaven. Jeremiah 10, 23. Jeremiah, the 10th chapter, 23rd verse. Jeremiah chapter 10 and verse 23. The Lord says, O Lord, I know the way of man is not in himself. It is not in man who walks to direct his own steps. Let that sink in. This is a humility imposed. <laughs> He says, the way of man is not in himself. In other words, I left to my own devices cannot figure out how I should live this life. 
I left to my own devices cannot figure out what's best in terms of my speech. I left to my own devices cannot figure out what's best in terms of my dress. I left up to my own devices can't figure out what's best in terms of my priorities. I left to my own devices cannot figure out what's best in terms of how I spend my money. I left to my own devices cannot figure out what's best in terms of how I spend my time. He says there's a way that seems right to a man. But the end there is death. And he, Jeremiah says, oh, Lord, the way of man is not in himself. We don't have the capacity to order our steps the way they should go. That needs to sink in. We need to understand our limitations. Sometimes we get really impressed with ourselves, really impressed with our intellect, really impressed with our achievements, our abilities. And God is saying, don't be impressed with that because you don't know how to find the path on your own. If I were to step back. If there was no revealed will, if you were just left on your own, you would not find the path to light. And we need to understand that because if we understand that, when we have these discussions, whether it's this question or any question, we're going to cling tenaciously to God's word. We're going to demand where is scripture for that? Where's the word of God for that? We're not going to let anybody, even our own brethren, get away with just coming and making something up. Well, this seems, no, no, what's, what's scripture on that? I think it's good, one has to be careful, but I think it's good in in a Bible class to try to redirect the direction of the talk and discussion to the Word of God. Sometimes when we have our Bible classes, we kind of lapse into Oprah Winfrey mode, you know? And we just kind of add, well, what do you think about that? What do you think about that? Everybody's opinion, everybody throws it out there. No, 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 no. What does the text say? What does the Word of God say? I remember being in a congregation, it wasn't my home congregation, uh, and I was visiting, and there was a Bible study, and I forgot, it was something in the Gospels. But there was a question that was raised about somebody's motivation, about why he did such a thing. And I, you know, was just reading as I want to do, you know, he cut it off at a certain area, and I said, well, let's just keep reading, and okay, there it is. So I figured that's what we're going to talk about. And we spent five to ten minutes Oprah Winfrey style with all these different speculation, conjecture, and all this kind of... And I'm like, it's right there! (laughs) It's right there in the book! Why are we speculating? Just go to the Word of God. The Word of God is what builds faith, not conjecture, not speculation. There was a brother, I loved him, over in Memphis in the congregation I worshipped there. And he was a truth detector. (laughs) And if you were the Bible class teacher or you were in that Bible class and you veered off the path of inspired word, he had big old long arms. He said, now, brother, that's just speculation. I appreciate that. We need people to call out speculation because we want to cling to what? The word, because he says, you know, we don't know how to direct our own footsteps. Look at Isaiah 55, 8 through 9. Isaiah 55, 8 through 9. Don't rely upon man to tell you how to get to heaven. Don't rely upon men to tell you how to get to heaven. Isaiah 55, 8 through 9. Isaiah, the 55th chapter, verses 8 through 9. Isaiah 55, verses 8 through 9. The Bible says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. And so the God tells us something very important here. He says, first of all, you and I, we think differently. We don't think the same way. 
So for those that are tempted to say, well, you know, I think God, and boy, if I were God, and it seems to me, and no, what God's just told you, that you don't think the way he thinks. So we can't figure God out. If we're told that it's different, it's going to have to be revelation. God's going to have to tell us that thinking. Otherwise, we have nothing to say on the subject. I can't, I'm not capable. You're not capable. The most intelligent man among us is not capable of divining the mind of God because he says it's fundamentally different. But he goes a step further, does he not? Not only are my thoughts different from your thoughts, my thoughts are better, infinitely better. Don't even compare. It's not in the same conversation. And so God is putting us in our place. And if we know that, you know, why is it we demand book, chapter, and verse? We appreciate principles like this. That we can't sit around and say, well, this is what I think we should do on homosexuality. We can't sit around and say, this is what I think we should do on abortion. We can't sit around and say, this is what I think we should do on fornication. No, 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 no. God says, my thoughts are different and my thoughts are better. And so where do we want to go? We want to go to the source of God's thoughts. We want to study God's thoughts. We want to meditate on God's thoughts. We want to be familiar with God's thoughts. We want to invoke God's thoughts. What should we do on this? What does God say on that? How should we feel about this? What does God say on that? What are we going to do on this? What does God's word say? You see that? We need to be disciplined. I hope that we're people of the book. Sometimes I wonder if we've gotten away from that. We don't know our Bibles the way we should. We haven't studied them as deeply as we should. And you start to hear things in Bible classes. You start to hear things sometimes even from the pulpit that sound very denominationalism, and that's not a compliment. We want to hear the Word, brother. Give us the Word. That's what we're teaching here. This is the mind of God. And notice what is said, practically speaking. What should we get away from the point? Okay, yeah, I got it. God's thoughts are different, and God's thoughts are better. What did I get from that? Well, back up to verses 6 through 7. He says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Listen to this. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Well, why should the wicked forsake his way? Because God's way is not his way and God's way is better than his way. Well, why should the unrighteous forsake his thoughts? Because God's thoughts are not his thoughts and God's thoughts are better than his thoughts. So the practical implication is get rid of your thinking and bow down to God. Adopt his thinking. That's why we need to spend more time in the word so we start thinking about things the way God does. It's not enough just to occasionally show up for services. It's not enough to occasionally study 15 minutes to make sure you're not embarrassed in a Bible study. You can answer the questions. We've got to adopt the mind of God as revealed. And that takes time because he just told us, I think differently and I think better. The more that we study, the more that we memorize, the more that we meditate, the more that we analyze, the more that we think about as we're in the shower, as we're driving to work, as we're driving to Walmart, as we're in the check, we're just minds naturally drifting to spiritual things. That helps us begin to see the world through the eyes of God to the extent a man can do that as revealed by his will. We need to make sure that we don't consult men when it comes to salvation. So do not rely upon men in terms of figuring out how to get to heaven. Let me give you a second point. And that's this. There's only one road to heaven. And there are few people on it. Let that sink in. There's only one road to heaven. And there are very few people on it. I remember being in school having a religious discussion. Uh, some might say a debate. It, uh, it might have got a little heated at times. And so you had this circle of kids 
debating something about God's will. And uh, there was a janitor who was listening. You tell when people are kind of overhearing what you're doing. He's kind of doing it, but kind of cocking his head that way. And he just kept listening and listening to that discussion. It was going back and forth and back and forth. And he just, at one point, just couldn't contain himself. Just had to interject himself into this conversation. And he, he says to us all, why, why are you guys arguing? Why are you guys fussing so much? Don't you know that most people are going to heaven? Most people are going to heaven. I, I, that's a very seductive doctrine. And it's a doctrine that I certainly wish were true. I don't wish anything ill on my fellow man. But there's a fundamental problem with that thinking, as hopeful as it may be in the eyes of the world. It's flat out wrong. <laughs> Jesus never said that. In fact, Jesus said the very opposite. Matthew 7, 13 through 14. Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 through 14. There's only one road to heaven, and there are few people on it. One road to heaven, and few people on it. Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 through 15. Matthew, the seventh chapter, Verses 13 through 15. Listen to what our Lord says. Enter by the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are many who go in by it. Because narrow is the gate and difficult is the way which leads to life. And there are few who find it. Ladies and gentlemen, that can be understood. It may not be liked. It may not be appreciated. It may not be politically correct. It may be considered by some as benighted, as fundamentalist, as divisive. But nobody can misunderstand where the Lord says there are two paths. There's the broad way, and that leads to destruction. And there's a narrow way, and that leads to life. Now, this is what I love about this. What are Jesus' instructions Enter by the narrow way. So nobody is on the road to destruction unless what? Unless they choose to be on that road. God doesn't arbitrarily put people on one road or the other. He says, enter by the narrow gate. Go by the straight way. Go by the narrow path. We have the ability to choose. We have two paths. Are we going to go the broad way? Are we going to go the narrow way? But what does he say about the broad way? He said, those folks are bound for destruction. Let's translate that in layperson speak. Those people are going to hell. Now, I don't take any glee in that. I'm not jumping up and down about that. But, you know, we, we, we've gotten to a point where we, we're kind of backing away from some things, you know. And that's just not politically correct. You don't talk about people going to hell. You, you don't talk about hell. We don't want to talk about it. We don't talk about heaven. I thought you started this sermon talking about how many paths are to heaven. I want to talk about the heaven part. We're not talking about hell. We've got to talk about them both. Why? Because part of the revealed will of God. Hell is a motivator, folks. Could that be part of our problem? Is we're not preaching and teaching enough about hell. Well, that's not going to draw people in. That's going to hurt people's feelings. That's old-fashioned. Nobody wants to hear that. That's not tolerant. You can throw whatever label you want to on it. I'm talking about truth. <laughs> what does the Word of God say? It teaches it. There's no more evidence for heaven than there is for hell. There's plenty of evidence for both, but they stand and fall together. You can't teach one without the other. Matthew 25, 31 through 46 tells you that. And so we need to understand that, that Jesus is saying most people are going to choose to go to hell. And think about the significance of that teaching coming out of our Lord and Savior's mouth, the one who gave up his life so people don't have to. And yet he still concedes the point 
that most people will elect otherwise. They will choose. I, I, I get really upset when people talk about, well, God's not going to throw in. That's unjust. No, no, no. We choose. We choose. God's not going to force you to be with him for all eternity. If you don't want to be, he's going to let you go where you want to go. Let's break it down for what it is. But that's what we're told is there's one path. And notice what he said. Few. There are few people on it. I think sometimes we get really discouraged when we start looking around us and we see the numbers. And the numbers are going over here and the numbers are going over there. And we look at amongst ourselves. Ain't much here. This is not impressive. I don't even want to invite anybody. They come over and say, what's wrong with you guys? Y'all must be doing something wrong. Nobody here. This is a handful. And we forget this kind of teaching. There's not going to be a lot of folks going to heaven. That's what the Lord said. Now, I'm not saying just because you're small, you're right. That doesn't mean anything either. But I'm saying don't get caught up in the numbers game. Because the Lord has just said tearfully, unfortunately, sadly, that most people are not going to go to heaven. And so there's only one road to heaven and there are few people on it. Third point I want to give to you is this. That one road that few people are on, that's the road of Jesus. That one road that few people are on, that's the road of Jesus. And folks, we've got to proclaim that message. We can't water that down. I mean, we live in this society that promotes religious pluralism and ecumenism. Oh, we want everybody. Everything's fine. I remember, same school we were talking about earlier about that debate about religion. There was another discussion. And we had different people from different walks of life, different ages, different religious views. And there was a person who would profess to be a Christian. And he said, look, for me, for me, the path to heaven is Christ. No question. Unequivocal. But, but, how dare I say that my Hindu brother doesn't have a path? How, how dare I say that my Muslim brother doesn't have a path? How, how dare I say that my Jewish brother doesn't have a path? This is my path, but there are other paths. Wait a minute, do you understand? You're claiming to wear the name of Christ. If you're going to claim to wear the name of Christ, you must embrace his teachings. And what did Christ teach on that subject? John chapter 14, verses 1 through 6. John, the 14th chapter, verses 1 through 6. What did Christ teach? What did Jesus say? Many, many people wearing, claiming to wear the name of Christ, but they don't know his teachings and don't embrace them. What a shame that is. John 14, 1 through 6. John chapter 14, 1 through 6. Listen to the word of God. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And where I go, you know, and the way, you know. Thomas said to him, Lord, we we do not know where you're going, and how can we know the way? Jesus said to him, verse 6, Jesus said to him, I am The way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That's another one of those sayings that you can't misunderstand. (laughs) You may not like it. It might not be politically correct. It may not win you a lot of friends. But the Lord's really clear on this thing. He says, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. That definitive article, exclusive 
There's no other way but me. I am that way. Thomas, you should know this. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And if you missed it on the first pass, I love that Jesus comes back and gets you again. No one comes to the Father except through me. How do you miss that? How do you miss the plainness of that teaching? I've had some discussions with people and I present that verse and trying to say, well, there might be a way. As No, 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 no. He says, no one comes to the Father unless it's through Jesus. There's no other way. And again, I'm not trying to be proudful when I say that. I'm not trying to say my team is better than your team. I'm not looking down my nose. I'm just proclaiming the truth of God's word. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And that's a universal truth. That truth is as true in Africa or in Australia or China as it is in the United States. It's a universal statement. If you want to go to the Father, i.e. you want to go to heaven then you got to come through Jesus. There's no other way. And friends, I hope that we as Christians are not ashamed of that teaching. Because I, I wonder sometimes, if we're starting to soften that a little bit, starting to back away, we're scared, we don't want to be one of them, we don't want to be see, seen as a bigot, don't worry about those labels. Just teach the truth of God. Now, of course, we want to teach it with love. And we want to teach it with humility. But that doesn't mean you water down the truth of what Jesus said. That's exclusive, folks. That's what it is. And yes, you're going to alienate some people with that teaching. Yes, you might lose some friends with that teaching. Yes, you may be unpopular in the workplace with that teaching. That's okay. Because you can't be the popular one. I think I may have said this in the meeting in Columbia. If the Lord couldn't pull it off, who are we to think we can here's the Lord who, who is the best in interpersonal communications. has to be. Here is the Lord who is the most skilled in the use of language. Here's the person, the Lord who is the most skilled in interpersonal dynamics. None of us would dare rank us uh, with Christ in those areas. And even Jesus, even Jesus couldn't convince everybody to like him. There were people that disliked the Lord. There are people who disliked his message and then disliked him. And we think we're going to be any better. have to embrace the fact not everybody's going to like us. You're going to lose some friends over the truth. That's okay. You're going to lose some stature over the truth. That's okay. You might lose some standing over the truth. That's okay. See, we're not trying to make heaven on earth. We're going to heaven where God is. We've got to get our priorities straight. There's one path, folks. And that path is the road of Jesus. And you know, not, not just Jesus taught that. Acts chapter 4, verses 9 through 12. Look over there. Jesus wasn't the only one. That's all you need. But Jesus wasn't the only one who taught that that one road that we have to be on, that one road that few people are on, that one road is the road of Jesus. Acts chapter 4, verses 9 through 12. Listen to what Peter says after they've been attacked for healing a man. If we this day are judged for a good deed, Done to a helpless man, by what means he has been made well. Let it be known to you all, to all the people of Israel, that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man stands here before you whole. This is the stone which was rejected by you builders, which has become the chief cornerstone. Listen to verse 12. Nor is there salvation in any other. For there is no other name under heaven 
given among men by which we must be saved. That's pretty strong, brethren. There's not salvation in any other name. He said there's no other name given among men under heaven by which we must be saved. There's only one name. It's the name of Jesus. We need to make sure that we preach that and we teach that and we never back off of that. We don't do people any favors when we suggest anything other than what Peter just said in Acts chapter 4 verse 12. There's only one path and there are few people on it and that path is the path of Jesus. Let me give you a fourth point. You want to be on the road of Jesus? You got to be a member of his one true church. If you want to be on the road of Jesus, you've got to be a member of his one true church. It's amazing to me how many people work so hard to divorce Jesus from the church. People say, oh, yeah, yeah, I have a relationship with Jesus. I, I love Jesus. I, I have a personal relationship with Jesus, but I, I don't want to get involved in the church. I, 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 don't, I don't want anything to do with the church. Sometimes I hear people, oh, I'm spiritual, but I don't want organized religion. It always makes me think, so you like disorganized religion, chaotic religion. Have you ever heard that God's not the author of confusion? But anyway, I don't go there. <laughs> but people want to separate Jesus from the church. You probably heard some, preach the man, not the plan. It's like many slogans, you know, they sound good, but you start to think about it, they don't make any sense. Preach the man, not the plan. Okay, let me see if I can get this right. Preach the man, not the plan. So the man came here for the plan. The man died for the plan, but you're telling me preach the man, not the plan. How do you do that? How do you separate from Jesus what he came here to do? (laughs) How do you do that? People always want to separate the church from Jesus. You know, Ephesians 5, 22-33 says you can't do that because the church is the bride of Christ. Let, let, me, let me talk to the husbands for a second. Let me talk to the husbands and audience. What if I pulled you aside and say, hey, man, you seem like a pretty cool fella. We got some of the same interests. Maybe we can go out hunting together a little bit, play some ball, shoot some hoops. I like football. You like football. I like barbecue. You like barbecue. I mean, I think we can spend a lot of time together, but I got to tell you something. You got to ditch the wife. I don't like her. I can't stand her. How do you get, how do you put up with that? She's always telling you what to do. She's always telling you to clean things up, telling you when to come in and do this and do that. I I don't want that. You don't want that. So look, let's just hang out, but you got to cut your wife off. Now, how many husbands are going to take me up on that? And better not be a single hand. <laughs> better not be a single hand. Are you in trouble? We're going to have a different sermon for you tomorrow night. <laughs> Nobody would do that. Nobody would do that. But, you know, that's essentially what people are saying. We, we want Jesus, but we don't want his bride. Look at Acts 2, 46 through 47. You can't separate those two. Acts 2, 46 through 47. Acts chapter 2, verses 46 and 47. After the sermon on Pentecost, and you had some... Men who were convicted that they had killed the Lord and they needed a Savior. In verses 46 to 47, listen, so continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart. Now listen to verse 47. Praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. What did it say? The Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. If you were being saved, what happened? The Lord added you to the church. Now let me ask you this. Can you have salvation outside of the church? 
No. Why? Because he says if you were saved, God added you to the church. You want salvation? You're going to have to be added to the church. There's no salvation outside the church. And somebody said, oh, Kevin, you're, you're just exalting the church over the Lord and you're making too much of the church. I'm just reading Acts 247. I understand the Lord is the Lord. I understand he's the head of the church, Acts 5, 22, 33. But right there it says, the Lord took those who were being saved and put them in the church. So I can't have salvation and not be in the Lord's church, right? So we need, to, we need to teach that. We need to understand that. We need to make sure people, if you want to be on this one road of Jesus, you have to be a part of his one true church. And let's emphasize this. One true church. Not a multiplicity of churches. Not a plurality of churches. Not even more than one. One church. Ephesians 4, 1 through 6. Turn over there. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. We want to be on the road of Jesus. We must be a member of his one true church. We want to be a member or on the road of Jesus. We must be a member of the one true church. Ephesians 4, 1 through 6. Ephesians, the fourth chapter, verses 1 through 6. Y'all going to have to do better on that clock. I can barely catch it. And I've been known to preach. Y'all might be here a little while, but I think I caught it. Ephesians 4, 1 through 6. I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with longsuffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And listen to verse 4. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, One God and Father of all who is above all and through all and in you all. What word just jumps off the page there? Over and over again. One, one, one. Now there was something there. I want you to see if you caught this. There is one body. There is one body. And somebody says, "Ah, I don't really know what that is. I I don't know what he refers to there. Well, Well, put that aside for a second. Whatever it is, here's what you know. Whatever it is, how many of them are? Are there? One. (laughs) So once we find out whatever that body is, there'll be no question, no debate. It's it's not hard. It's not uh, ambiguous. Whatever it is, there's only one of them, right? Okay, I've been unfair to you. Because if you've been reading the book of Ephesians, you would have already read Ephesians 1, 22 through 23. So let's go over there. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 22 through 23. Ephesians first chapter, verses 22 through 23. And the Bible says this, and he put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things, listen to this, to the church, verse 23, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. What's the church? It's his body. And so in Ephesians 4, verse 4, when it says there's one body, what is he talking about? There's one church. You can interchange those. One church, one body. The body is the church, church is the body. You see that? There's only one, folks. I don't care what you read in the newspapers. I don't care what you see in the yellow pages. I don't care what's on social media. I don't care what's on the radio. I don't care what's on television. There is one church. Why? That's what the Bible says. Let God be true and every man a liar. That's what we're defending. Oh, you people are arrogant. Oh, you people are exclusive. Oh, you people are divisive. I'm just teaching the truth. I'm just teaching the truth. And the truth is no less true for you than it is for me. It's truth. (laughs) By definition, it's universal. It's true for everybody. What's true for everybody is there's one true church. And the question is, do you want to be a part of it? And if so, then you must do so on the Lord's terms, not ours. Which leads me to my last point. If you want to be a member of the Lord's true church, 
you must obey the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you want to be on the one road to salvation, that one road that few people are on, that one road that's the road of Jesus, that one road that requires you to be a member of his one true church, if you want to be on that road, you must obey the gospel of Jesus Christ. Somebody says, well, what, is that? what does that mean? I thought gospel was good news. How do you obey good news? Is that concept even valid? 2 Thessalonians 1, 6 through 9. 2 Thessalonians 1, 6 through 9. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 6 through 9. If you want to be a member of the Lord's one true church, you must obey the gospel of Jesus Christ. 2 Thessalonians 1, 6 through 9. The Bible says, Since it is a righteous thing with God to repay with tribulation those who trouble you and to give your trouble to rest with us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, listen to verse 8, in flaming fire, taking vengeance, listen to this, on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel. Of our Lord Jesus Christ. These shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. It must be imminently possible to obey the gospel of Jesus Christ because the Lord says right here that he's coming back in flaming fire on those who do not know God and those who what? Who do not obey the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so we better figure out what it means to obey the gospel of Jesus Christ and we better do it or we're going to be the receiving end of that vengeance and you don't want that. So how do we do that? How do we obey the gospel of Jesus Christ? Well, let me suggest to you from Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6. Turn over there. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6. We must believe. We must have faith in order to obey the gospel of Jesus Christ. Hebrews 11, verse 6. Hebrews 11, chapter, verse 6. The Bible says, but without faith, without faith, it's impossible to please God. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. So I want to please God. Does anybody think anybody's going to get salvation if they don't please God? So I want to please God. What does Hebrews 11, 6 says? I've got to have faith. I've got to believe. What I've got to believe? That God is, that he exists. That's, that's necessary, not sufficient, but it's necessary. But I also have to believe that he rewards those who half-heartedly seek him, sometimes seek him. Uh, no, who diligently seek him. I've got to believe those two things. Somebody says, well, how how do I get that conviction? How do I get that faith? I want to have the faith that pleases him, but where does it come from? Romans 10, 17. Turn over there. Romans 10, 17. To obey the gospel, we have to believe. But where does the belief come from? How do we get the belief? How can we cultivate belief in our hearts? Romans 10, 17. The Bible says, so then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. We've got to be exposed to God's word, folks. That's it. How do we build faith? Remember we said a while ago why we're so adamant that people, when they preach and they teach, they preach and teach God's word. Why? It builds faith. It builds the faith that is necessary to please God. And that's part of obeying the gospel. So why would a gospel preacher do anything but preach God's word? We're not up here preaching science and we're not preaching history and we're not preaching uh, uh, current events and, and politics. And I'm not saying you can't have illustrations. The Lord used illustrations. But what we're proclaiming, what we're preaching, what we're teaching, what we're sharing is God's word. Why? Build faith. Romans 10, 17. That's where you get faith. You got a faithless congregation, you need to start preaching, teaching the word more. You want to build people's faith, get them exposed to God's word. There's no secret to this, folks. It's simple. The more you're exposed to God's word, the more faith you have. You want to have that shield Ephesians 6 talks about, the shield of faith that's able to quench the fiery darts of the wicked one? Got to have more faith. Where does that come from? God's word. Spend more time with God's word. Spend more time studying. Spend more time memorizing. Spend more time meditating. Spend more time discussing, teaching. Spend more time with the thing that builds faith. But not only that. You believe based on that faith. But is that it? Is that sufficient? No, it's not sufficient because go back to Acts 2 again. Acts chapter 2. 
Acts chapter 2 and verse 38. These men who were cut to the heart, convicted that they had taken with lawless hands and had crucified the Son of God, the very Son of God, the one sent to save them, they had crucified. And the first word out of Peter's mouth is recorded in Acts 2.38. Then Peter said to them, repent. Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the mission of sins and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Change your mind, which leads to a change in lifestyle, a change in thinking, a change in behavior. Sister in Christ told me years ago that she was concerned about something. She was concerned. She said, Kevin, I'm so concerned. I think that sometimes we are so anxious. We are so eager. We are so excited about getting people into the watery grave of baptism that we rush them right past repentance. We better not do that because repentance precedes baptism. There has to be change. You can't just keep living the same old way. You don't do the same things. You don't speak the same way. Otherwise, we give rise to that criticism that, well, when he went in, he was a dry devil. And when he comes out, he's a wet devil. He's still a devil and change. No, by faith, we change. We repent. And that's necessary. Remember Luke 13, 1 through 3, the Lord. You know, people really haven't changed much. People have a tendency when something bad happens. What's one of the first things people say? Must not have been living right. Something wrong with you. What did you do? And, and that's right. There were some people who had been killed by Pontius Pilate. Their blood had been sprinkled among the sacrifices. And they were saying, well, these guys must have been worse sinners. And, and Jesus says, no, 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 no. You missed the point. He said, here's the point. Unless you repent, <laughs> you will all likewise perish. We've got to repent. Repentance is necessary. Repentance is part of obeying the gospel. We hear the word of God. We believe it. We're convicted. We repent. And we do what? Romans 10.10. 10. Romans 10.10. 10. What else do we do as part of our obedience to the gospel? That obedience to the gospel that was talked about in 2 Thessalonians 1, 6-9. Romans chapter 10 and verse 10. Romans the 10th chapter verse 10. The Bible says, For with the heart one believes unto righteousness. And listen to this. With the mouth confession is made unto salvation. We must confess that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. That is a part of obeying the gospel of Jesus Christ. We have to declare that fundamental truth that Jesus is who He claimed to be, the Son of God. And then, yes, because, you know, there are a lot of religious people in the world that would say amen to everything that I've said to this point in the sermon about obeying the gospel. They would say, yes, you've got to hear the gospel. Yes, you've got to believe. Yes, you must repent. Yes, you must confess. But this next part of the plan of salvation, this next part of obeying the gospel, this next part of the Lord's prescription for sin is so problematic in the minds of many, many people. And that is we must be baptized into Christ. We must be baptized. We must be baptized in Christ because Mark 16, 16, Jesus said, He who believes and is baptized shall be saved. That's necessary. 1 Peter 3, 21. Turn over there. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 21. Baptism is a part of the plan of salvation. Baptism is a part of obeying the Lord. Baptism is part of what puts us in to the body of Christ. It's part of the plan of salvation. It cannot be taken away. It cannot be eliminated. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 21. There is also an antitype which now saves us. Let's stop right there for a second. There is also an antitype which now saves us. Now again, much like when we talked about the body in Ephesians 4.4. 4. I, I don't know what an antitype is. Okay, you don't know what an antitype is. But what do you know from what you just read so far? Whatever the antitype is, it saves us. Can we agree with that? Whatever that antitype is, it saves us. We're not going to fight that. We're not going to get mad about that. We're not going to say, what about my grandma? What about my... No, no, whatever it is, 
It saves us because the Word of God, that's inspired. We established that second, uh, Timothy 3, 16 through 17. The inspired Word of God says this antitype saves us. Now, let's answer the question by doing what we should do so many times. Keep reading. What is this antitype? There is also an antitype which now saves us. Baptism. Not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the answer New King James Version. The answer of a good conscience toward God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. What is that antitype that saves us? It's baptism. I remember talking to a young fellow when we lived in Memphis. And he was in a denomination. And we, he considered himself to be a Christian even when he came to the study. And we looked at this verse. And uh, we had uh, kind of like a whiteboard. And I just said, hey, 1 Peter 3.21 says... Baptism doth now save us. Now, got a lot of preachers and a lot of pastors and a lot of rabbis, a lot of men who say it doesn't. And you've got a choice. Are you going to be with the Lord where it says baptism saves us? Or are you going to go with men? And it's as stark as that, folks. That's it. I don't know why people get so worked up over that. Let the Lord be the Lord. You know, we'll talk a little bit about this maybe tomorrow night. But, you know, it's like the servants when they had to come to Naaman. And kind of wake him up, smack him a little bit. Say, wait a minute. You came all the way over here to get saved from your leprosy. Now the man tells you to go dip in the River Jordan seven times and you want to get bowed up and angry. Why not just do what he says and live? And that's what he, when he did that. When he dipped seven times, guess what happened? Exactly what the man of God said would happen. He was cleansed of his leprosy. And we say the same thing. What happens when you come up from the watery grave of baptism? Exactly what God says is going to happen. You have your sins washed away and you're added to the church. And he added to the church daily those who are being saved. Either you believe that or you don't, folks. That's it. Do you think that's too hard for the Lord? That he can transform people through the waters of baptism? That's a faith problem. You know, we, people want to portray baptism as this work, and you all work salvation. You've got a faith problem. You don't believe in the operation of God, Colossians 2, 11 through 12. Baptism saves us. Look at 1 Corinthians 12, 12 through 13. 1 Corinthians 12, 12 through 13. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 12 through 13. If we're going to be on that road, one road of Jesus, we've got to be a member of his one true church. If we're going to be a member of one true church, we have to obey the gospel of Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 12, 12 through 13. For as the body is one, has many members, but all the members of that one body, being many, are one body, so also is Christ. Listen to verse 13. For by one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greek, whether slaves or free, and have all been made to drink into one spirit. How do I get into that one body that Ephesians 4, 4 was talking about, which is the church, Ephesians 1, 22, 23. Right here, 1 Corinthians 12, 12 through 13 says, I'm baptized into that body. Well, what if I believe and I'm not baptized? Am I in that body? No. Why? Because here you have to be baptized to get into the body. If I'm not baptized, I don't get into the body. Fundamental, folks. Elementary. This is basics. Two plus two equals four. It's not rocket science. But people don't want to accept it. People don't like it. Because maybe their loved one didn't do this. Maybe they weren't taught this way. Maybe their tradition doesn't say that. Let the Lord be the Lord. The Lord knows salvation. Nobody else does. And we started at the very beginning. What was that point? Don't rely upon men to tell you how to get to heaven. Rely upon the word of God that gives you the prescription. So the questions that I raised at the very beginning of this sermon... How many roads lead to heaven? Don't rely upon men to tell you how to get to heaven. How many roads lead to heaven? There's one road and few people are on it. 
How many roads lead to heaven? That one road is the road of Jesus. How many roads lead to heaven? To be on that one road of Jesus, you have to be a member of his one true church. How many roads lead to heaven? If you want to be a member of that one true church, you have to obey the gospel of Jesus Christ. Ladies and gentlemen, brothers and sisters, visitors, there's only one path. That's through Jesus. And you have to be a part of his church. And to do that, you have to obey the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I don't say that with any glee. I don't say that with any pride or arrogance. It's just the truth. It's just the truth. And if you haven't done that, it doesn't make you a bad person that you haven't done it. There was a point in my life when I hadn't done it. It doesn't make you a bad person that you're in a family that hasn't believed that. What it means is you're lost. And we need to understand that. Remember Cornelius? Acts chapter 10, verses 1 through 4. Read that again. You can't come up with a better description of a man than Cornelius. Devout, believed God with all his household, gave alms to the people generously, prayed to God. Oh, wonderful things. And yet, what do we know about him in that state with that description? And might I remind you, that wasn't just Luke's description of that man. That was the Holy Spirit's description of that man. And with all those good redeeming qualities, he was lost because he hadn't obeyed the gospel. So that's why I say the gospel is universal. It's not a matter how good you think. No one's good enough for God. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We've all missed the mark. And that one sin, the one time we either did something that God forbid or we failed to do something God directed us to, that one sin, that one rebellion, that act of rebellion against God, that one sin is enough to condemn us to hell. Let's be honest about that. See ourselves as we truly are. We keep looking around and saying, well, we all got feet of clay and trying to minimize sin. Look up and understand how serious a thing sin is. It's a terrible thing. It's what put Jesus on the cross. Once we've committed that, we're lost, folks. And hell is what we deserve. But we don't have to go there. Because God loved us so much that he gave his very own son on the cross. And we can obey the gospel of Jesus Christ. We can hear the gospel message. We can believe it. We can repent of our former way of life. We can confess Jesus as the son of God. And yes, we can be baptized into Christ. And I tell you, folks, everybody here who's a Christian can tell you the feeling of coming up out of that watery grave of baptism. Oh, it's like it was yesterday. Having the weight of the world removed, having your sins being clean in the sight of God. And then you start the most beautiful, beautiful life there is to, to live, to seek and to save that which is lost. And I know that's the most noble work under the sun because it's why the Lord came. Luke 19.10. The Son of God came to seek and to save that which is lost. And to go about trying to bring joy to people's lives by introducing them to God. Helping them reconcile themselves with God. There's not a better, more fulfilling life to be lived on this side of the grave. If you're in this audience and you haven't done that, would you obey God tonight? Would you become a member of His one true church? Would you get on that one road of Jesus? Would you have the hope of eternal life? Because you know you're safe in the arms of Jesus because you've done what the Lord demands. If anyone's here and hasn't obeyed the gospel, we beg you, we plead with you, we exhort you, we encourage you. Get out of the chair. Make the good confession. Obey the gospel of Jesus Christ tonight. 
and be a member of his body and have the peace of heart that surpasses all understanding. If anyone's up to the invitation, we ask you to come forward as we stand.